chapter 5, and we have uh, seen in the first part of this chapter the tremendous uh, benefits of being a Christian, and we're going to look from verses 6 to verse 11. But before we do that, I do want to say something to the congregation here, those who are part of this congregation, but also if you are a Christian from another part of another church, and it's a particular burden. And maybe I want to introduce this to you by mentioning a Canadian clinical psychologist called Jordan Peterson, who's a character, to put it mildly. And I have been following him for a couple of years, been reading his stuff, and he has come to the United Kingdom, and this uh, unassuming man in many ways has just absolutely sold out uh, massive lecture theatres and halls in London with people travelling from all over Britain. And this is the thing that utterly amazes me. Uh, I know people who are militant atheists who have gone to hear this man. And... Um, I'm just in the middle of reading his, his book, which has also just come out. He's been on television. There's a tremendous fuss about him. And uh, yesterday in The Spectator, there was uh, an astonishing article about him as well. Now, just a couple of things for anyone who's tempted to get into him. I, I think he's absolutely brilliant. But he's not there as a Christian yet. He's very close. He's not there quite yet. And what... Um, in some things, there, there's some things that are missing. I think actually the big thing that's missing is he doesn't get what we're going to look at uh, this morning, Christ. But oh, he comes so close. And for me, it is uh, absolutely thrilling to have these things being discussed in our public media. There are uh, Christian preachers, if only we could get the kind of crowds that he gets, but the things that he's saying are, come so close. So let me give you an, an example. This is Douglas Murray writing in The Spectator. And again, Douglas Murray is not a Christian. He is an atheist. He's a gay activist as well. Um, but he writes some really, really good stuff. And he says this, from Peterson's teaching, speeches, writing, and interviews, it is clear that he has made one of the most unpopular but vital realizations of our time, that we are creating a generation of men who, especially if they don't belong to any minority group, are without hope foundation or purpose. And it, to me, it is absolutely thrilling that that is being identified and seen because so many people are without hope, foundation, or purpose. And that's what Peterson is doing. He's saying that we're hopeless. He's saying since we've rejected Christianity as a Western society and Western culture, that we're having, we've, we've got all people at the top. We've got the elites We've got, you know, the Oxbridge people and so on who are, you know, they're top in the media, they're top everywhere, and they've got a purpose. But, and he, he uses normal working class people, young men are being told there's really no purpose in life. And he's coming and saying, yes, there is a purpose. And he, he gets, as I say, he gets very, very, very close. But what struck me, uh, I've listened to him several times, is... He's, he's very analytical, he's a psychologist and so on, but he's also very emotional. And he, uh, he speaks about, about men needing to be proper fathers. He's speaking about male and female actually do matter and they do exist. And uh, he, gets, he gets very um, passionate 
about it, and he's bitterly attacked, and he's constantly abused. And I thought, you know, he's got this passion and zeal, and he's not quite got there. He's got, he sees the problem. He hasn't got the answer yet. But we do as Christians, and we're so superficial about communicating it, and we lack the passion to tell a lost generation of a Savior. And I was thinking about that when reading these verses, because these verses that we look at just now are, are so wonderful that if you grasp them when you leave this place, you'd be wanting to grab people and shake them by the collar and say, listen to this. Um, probably not a good idea to do it, but find some way of actually doing it. I also want to ask um, simply this, whether you have any enemies. Uh, is there anybody that hates you? Um, whether the people you dislike, people, people often sometimes within your own family that there's tension, whether there's tension and problems at work, whether culturally there are enemies. I, I've heard people, I've heard people go, I hate the English, or I hate the Irish, or I hate these people, I hate Germans, I hate Russians, I hate whatever. That's, that's horrible when they have that because when you have enemies, there's hatred, there's strife, there's war. Sometimes within the church, there can be people who we almost regard as our enemies. And how we deal with our enemies and having enemies. Um, I, I think if someone said, I don't have any enemies, I'm almost inclined to ask, do you actually have any friends? Um, do you actually do anything? Do you have a life? Uh, or or is, is, is life just bland? But what we're going to look at today, for me, is, is wonderful, but we're going to begin with something very profoundly disturbing. So let's read from verses 6 to verse 8 of Romans 5. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Later on in verse 10, he talks about when we were God's enemies. And this is a fundamental and key part for us to grasp that I think psychologically, I think emotionally, I think culturally, we don't get it. And I find it a little bit embarrassing that in most Christian churches you go into, you will not be taught this, and a Canadian clinical psychologist comes to us and tells us you're God's enemies. Because uh, in his first series of lectures, that's what he was saying, was breathtaking. We are enemies of God. Peterson puts it this way in his book, even if we have defeated all the snakes that beset us from without, reptilian and human alike, we would still not have been safe, nor are we now. We have seen the enemy after all, and he is in us. The snake inhabits each of our souls. The worst of all possible snakes is the eternal human proclivity for evil. The worst of all possible snakes is psychological, spiritual, personal, internal. No walls, however tall, will keep that out. Even if the fortress were thick enough in principle to keep everything bad whatsoever outside, it would immediately appear again within. As the great Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn insisted, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. We have enemies, 
But the greatest enemy that you have is yourself. The greatest enemy that you have is what is within. You see, there are Christians who want to, and this is true for Christians as well, there are Christians who want to protect their family, protect themselves. We're not going to see this. We're not going to do that. We're not going to be there. We're we're going to live almost like in a little Christian commune. We're going to build the walls, build the wall, and we'll be fine. But you won't be fine because the enemy is within. As Peterson puts it, the snake is within. And how do we deal with that? Well, there's an implication of that in the text that we look at as well, is that we are enemies of God. Now, most people don't think like that. Most people would say, either I don't believe in God, or if there is a God, we're okay. I don't mind God, and he won't mind me. Such a flippant way to look at it. But even those of us who are, inverted commas, religious, or those of us who are genuinely Christian, I, I don't think we grasp just what how serious this is. We are enemies of God. And Paul puts it, in the words on the screen, there's just four things, I think, that he, he shows how we're enemies. First of all, we're sinners. We are the ungodly. We have turned away from God. We've fallen short of his standards. We don't want to know God. We don't want God's law. We are against God. It's not just that we are atheist, we we don't believe that there's a God, but we are opposed to God. We are anti-theist, we are anti-God. Secondly, he says, we are his his rebels, his enemies, there's this deep-seated hostility. One of the great things about Romans is every time I I come and look at a couple of verses, I could just go to other parts of Romans to get the the verses to, uh, to illustrate that, and Paul always expands And when we get to Romans 8, you'll see that here. In Romans 8, 7, he says, the sinful mind is hostile to God. So your position, if you are here and you're not a Christian, is not that you don't care. It's not that you're curious, that you'd like to find out. It's not even that you're seeking God. It's that you're hostile. You're opposed. You're hostile to him. You are at war with God. The sinful mind is hostile to God. Let me also say that to those of us who are Christians, because we we battle on. There's a warfare within, and sometimes you and I, if we are being honest, are hostile to God. Did God say this? Did God mean this? Why would God permit that? Can I tell you that the greatest blackness I've ever known in my life, ever, is beginning to doubt and question the goodness and purity and love of God, when I cannot meditate on the goodness and love of God because there's a snake within, because there's a darkness, because there's, a, there's a, an, an accusatory spirit, if you like. We shall not have this man to reign over us. That psalm we sang, Psalm 82, it seems a bit strange because we've, we've lost the, the notion of doing that, but that's the prophet saying It's the Bible saying to the rulers, stop making laws that benefit the powerful and that excuse the wicked. Stop doing that and rise up and defend the oppressed and the poor. Now, defending the oppressed and the poor, everyone's going to say that. Every politician will say, yes, 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 we're going to do that. But the way that you defend the oppressed and the poor is not by talking about it, but it's by enacting God's word. It's not by challenging God and changing his law to suit you. We are rebels against God. We are sinners. We are rebels. 
There's a third aspect, and this is hard to accept as well. God is our enemy. Some people read this, the verses here as being passive, as though somehow we're enemies of God and God's there. God's stoical. Oh, well, they're enemies. Never mind. I'll. But no, there is a, a, you know, people like to speak of the love of God and we have love as some kind of feeling and emotion amongst other things. And we'll say, if someone says, well, God doesn't have feelings or emotions, we hate that. But what about the fact that God is our enemy? Love is a reciprocal thing. So also is being an enemy. That's a reciprocal thing. And in verse 9, it actually says that God's wrath is against us. God is opposed to us. So I may have enemies and you may have enemies. We may have rivals at work. We may have struggles within our families. We may have individuals who we just do not like. We may even belong to a nation that physically goes to war. And we have enemies. And yet, the biggest problem that you have is that if you are not a Christian, God is your enemy. See, we, we, we too often portray, proclaim the gospel as being, listen, we need to tell you all that God loves you and you're all children of God. And if I'm a non-Christian and I hear that and I go, well, that's really good. That's great. Thanks. Now I'll just get on with my life. But being told that God is opposed to you, the lifestyle that you are living, well, I'm just, I don't need God. I'm just going to carry on. No, no. You can't cut God out of your life. Because one day you will stand before God and you will answer to him for what he has given to you. You can't cut God out of your life. You're his enemy. And no matter, I mean, that's why you just get this so much rage and anger. I've, I often say this when I debate with some atheists, some of the more fundamentalist ones who, whose motto is, I tell them, your motto is there is no God and I hate him. Well, you think about it, why would you hate something that doesn't exist? I don't hate the Loch Ness Monster or Santa Claus. Um, and I'm sorry if you believe that both those exist. But you don't hate something that doesn't exist. And yet, there is within humanity, again, I'm going back to Peterson's analogy, which I found really powerful, actually. He doesn't accept the story of uh, Adam and Eve. Well, he kind of does, but he always just morphs it into a, uh, an analogy. But I think there is, there is this snake within. There's this, this, this hatred and this blindness and this uh, rebellion against God. Now, why is all that important? I think it's important because I don't think we will appreciate what God has done unless we grasp who we are. Or maybe I could reverse it and say, I don't think we will grasp who we are until we grasp what God has done. Jesus dying on the cross is not a beautiful picture. It is an ugly, horrible, horrendous, evil, black thing. And to think that he did it for you, he did it for me, our immediate response should be, but wait a minute, what did I do that deserves that? And once you start asking that question, you'll begin to understand what Paul is speaking about here. These verses tell us that we're enemies of God, but they tell us also that we are loved by God. This is how God demonstrates or God proves his love. 
At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's, it's as though you're, in, you're drowning and someone that just before you go under for the last time throws you a, a rope. Or you're in a burning building and at just the last moment, a ladder appears and enables you to escape out of the window. Well, at just the right time is in the context of human history. This was the perfect time. It was the right time that Jesus came into this world and that he died for us. Now, Paul uses a very straightforward argument that every one of us can grasp. Rarely will someone die for a righteous person. Someone might die for a good person, but Christ died for us while we were sinners, rebels, enemies. Oh, and the one thing I missed out, actually, under sin is we're powerless. Sorry, I really should have stressed that. In verse 6, it says, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. See, Peterson falls for this, as does many other people. Do you know by far the most popular books in, in bookshops and airports are their self-help books? What Paul comes to you and he, what he tells us is simply this. You can't help yourself. You are weak. You are feeble. You are morally debilitated, spiritually dead. So you might recognize, I shouldn't be like this. I shouldn't do this. My life is not great, and so on. And even when you hear someone tell you that, you might say, oh, thank goodness, somebody recognizes that. Now, I'm going to go out, and I've got his, uh, Peterson's book is 12 rules for living. I've got 12 rules, or I've got 10 commandments, or I've got this, and I've got that. And Paul says, no, you're powerless. You can't save yourself. And again, in our culture, in our context, in our society, that is really hard to hear. But it's while we were powerless that Christ came, while his, the Jewish people were occupied by a Roman Empire, whilst everything was in a mess, that Christ came and Christ died. Now, the argument he uses, we have a stone outside there, the Eternity Stone, to commemorate Robert Annan, who during the course of his life, he was a man who was converted, became a Christian preacher in the 19th century here in Dundee. It's a street named after him, Annan Street. Amazing story. But he uh, rescued, during the course of his relatively short life, nine people from drowning in the River Tay. He was a very strong swimmer. Well, one day he got up outside his house, which was Annan Street. Uh, it wasn't called that then. It named after him afterwards. And he wrote in the, word, in the ground his favorite word, Eternity. He always preached on eternity. And he went down to the docks, and a nine-year-old boy had fallen into the River Tay, and Annan jumped in to save him. And he saved the boy, but the, the riptide caught him and took him out to sea, and he drowned. And he was the first commoner to have a civic funeral in this city, and the eternity stone. He had said to the people just before that, that you will never forget eternity. And the eternity stone was kept, and it's, we now have it as part of the church just out, outside there. And you can understand that. Maybe, maybe you, maybe if you were walking down the River Tay and a child fell in, you would say, oh, you jump in, and maybe you'd give your life to do that. Maybe you would go into your neighbor's house if it was burning and take a tremendous risk and maybe give your life to rescue them. 
But there isn't a single person here who honestly would say, do you know this, I would give my life for Osama bin Laden. Or that taxi driver, all the fusses about in London, the rapist and so on, who's going to be released early from prison. Which one of us would say, I'll die for him? We wouldn't. You don't die for your enemy. And yet, this is what happened. No one dies for evil people. And yet, whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do we know God loves us? Well, the essence of love is giving. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. John Stott says this, the more the gift costs the giver and the less the recipient deserves it, the greater the love is seen to be. You know, you've, uh, your partner, your wife, your husband, maybe your children, maybe your best friend, you really, really love them and you want to give them, you spend a lot on them. But let's say you're working in the office and you don't particularly like the person that you've got to do the secret Santa for or whatever. You're not exactly going to go out and break the bank for them, are you? You get them something, you know. You're not really going to do that. But look at what God gave his enemies. Stott says, measured by these standards, God love in Christ is absolutely unique. For in sending his son to die for sinners, he was giving everything, his very self, to those who deserve nothing from him except judgment. He gave the greatest gift. Sometimes, and you might be like this as a non-Christian, you might say, I would believe in God if he sent me an angel. If an angel came and told me, I would believe. I would believe that God loved me. Well, God did send prophets and God did send angels, but God has sent so much more. God gave his only son. He gave the greatest gift. I mean, how do you feel when someone gives you something that you know has cost them a lot, that is very special to them and very precious to them. I'm, I'm not, I'm just, I was trying to think if anyone's ever done that for me. Um, and I, I can't particularly think of, of something. You know, would you love someone enough to give them your last Rolo? And if you don't understand that cultural reference, you're too young. Uh, you don't like sweets. But, you know, um, I think of somebody whose pride and joy is his motorbike. And he just, he looks after it, he cares for it, he does everything. Imagine if that man came and said, look, I want you to have my bike. You just, you take it, you keep it, I want you to have it. What a gift that is for him. But to give your son, uh, that's incomprehensible. Even in human terms, it's, it's incomprehensible. I'm not giving my child for anybody Never mind for people who hate me and people who despise me. And yet, that's what God did. He died, we were told. Just the right time, Christ died. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us while we were still sinners. He didn't die for us when we deserved it. He didn't die for us when we came in repentance. He didn't die for us knowing that we wanted to come to him. He died for us when we were still shaking our fist at him, when we hated him. And he atoned for us. The word used 
for us is a word, mean, well, it's a simple word, hyper. And it means on behalf of. The Greek word anti would mean instead of. And there are some people who say, well, this doesn't teach that Jesus died in our place. It's just teaching that he was a really good example. But they're missing the point because it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. And the penalty of sin, Romans 6.23, is this. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's while we still deserve to die that Jesus died in our place. So how can we doubt the love of God? The infinitely worthy one has died for the infinitely unworthy. There are people who leave this world and who die, and you think, well, you know, the world's not going to be a worse place without them. In fact, it's going to be a better place. Do you know what God could have done? I was asked, I was um, speaking down in Durham on Friday, and a lot of questions afterwards, and one man came up to me and said, why doesn't God save everyone? It's not fair. And I said, do you want fairness? Fairness would be if God destroyed everyone because everyone's rejected him, everyone's his enemy, and God could have said, right, wipe out, let's start again. But he didn't. The infinitely worthy one has died for the infinitely unworthy. And, and some of us, I think, we, we feel, sometimes we feel this lack of self-esteem. That's putting it mildly. And the Bible comes and says, yeah, right, good feeling, dead right. There's a lot. In fact, there's more than you think. But don't be so self-obsessed. You can, you can still be absorbed by the self-esteem, and it's still all about you. Because the infinitely worthy one has died for the infinitely unworthy. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 4, verse 10. But we're not done. Let's go into verses 9 to 11 because that, that's, that's brilliant news. But it gets better. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There's this great thing in the New Testament. It's very helpful to know this and to realize it, that salvation is something that happened in the past. It's something that's happening now that you experience now, and it's something that will happen in the future. A pattern repeated many times, especially in Paul. And here Paul does it again. Salvation happened in the past through Christ. You were reconciled through Christ through his death on the cross. Salvation is happening now as you experience the love of God being poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit. And salvation as these verses teach us, is something that's for the future. Sometimes um, I was smiling last Sunday night because we sang yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the same, all may change, but Jesus never glory to his name. Now, some of you know that as a chorus, but it was a hymn as well, and it was quite intriguing because I was at the back when we were singing, and I could spot all the old brethren people <laughs> Sorry, and you are old. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and the gospel hall type people, you know, and, you know, Church of Scotland and so on, the free church people, of course. You're old enough for that era, you just sang Psalms. And it was interesting because, uh, you know, like some of you, I have to say this, you were really getting into it. This was taking you back to the good old days. 
And it was just, it was, it was, it was wonderful. Yesterday, today, forever. Jesus is the same. Well, the, the mission hall, old brethren style, you'd always have somebody who'd come up to you and go, are you saved, brother? Usually in a Northern Irish accent, are you saved? <laughs> you know, a powerful sermon, are you saved? <laughs> and uh, I, I mean, I've gone to Northern Ireland and preached and been asked if I've been saved, so that, that says a lot. Um, but do you know the answer to that? The answer to that is not yes. The answer to that is yes and no. Yes, if we trust in Jesus, we're saved from the guilt of our sins and we're saved from judgment. But there are things we've not been saved from yet, continual indwelling sin that still affects us, or our decaying bodies. We don't have our new bodies yet, so there is still stuff to come. There's a time in glory, in heaven, when you won't have any more sin, which is the most scarily wonderful thought you will ever, ever have. You won't have any more sin. You won't be capable of sin. There won't be any sin around you. There won't be any temptation. And there's a time when your body will not decay, when it will be renewed, when it will have the most incredible properties, and we just don't know what that will be. So are you saved? Yes, I am, but no, I'm not. There's more to come. And he says there are two assurances, future assurances given here. One, we're going to be saved from God's wrath. There is going to be a day of reckoning. Earlier, chapter 2, verse 5, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. For those who are self-seeking and reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. If you are not a Christian, I, I, this is the most uncomfortable thing I know about you. And it's just simply this. You may be rejecting God, you may be smug about that, you may be abusive, you may be superior, you, you may be ignorant, but all the time you're storing up judgment against yourself. You're not, you're not going to ever, ever, ever be in a position where you can say, I can forget God and so God <coughs> will forget me. That's not what's going to happen. There is a day coming, a day of judgment, a day when all the wrong things are put right. And Paul tells us, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, that it is Jesus who is the one who rescues us from the wrath to come. So, if you are a Christian, you can be absolutely confident that on the day of judgment, you will stand. You will stand in the righteousness of Christ. You will stand with your robes, that is, your, your, all the deeds that you have done, washed, whitened, cleansed by the death of Jesus. And he says, we are saved from that because we're justified by his blood. Verse 9, since we've been justified by his blood. But you're smart. You've read the earlier bit in Romans, or you remember the sermon I did on it, that I thought we were justified by faith. So what does it mean, justified by blood? By his blood means by his sacrificial death. And what that tells us is it's not just the act of having faith, but it's who we have faith in and what he has done that counts. And it's by that faith in Jesus and what he has done that we are reconciled. And that's back to the enemies. Reconciliation is the act of making enemies friends. We are no longer enemies. Paul loves this. He repeats this many times. Colossians 1.21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free 
from accusation. See, as a Christian, I know this. Please understand this if you're not a Christian. I'm not standing before you and saying, you're not a Christian, you're an enemy of God, I'm a Christian, I'm a good person, uh, I'm not an enemy of God. I was an enemy of God, and in my heart with sin and so on, I'm still, in one sense, an enemy of God. And yet, he has reconciled, he, he has changed things so that I will be able to stand before him without blemish, free from accusation. I love that because when the devil comes and accuses you and the devil is the accuser, you can just say, no, I'm free from accusation, not because I'm good, not because I'm pure, but because of what Jesus did. And he goes on to say we're going to be saved through his life. We experience the power of his resurrection, and I'd love to go into that, but that's all done in Romans 8, so we'll come to Romans 8 uh, later on. But the best is yet to be. Again, it's interesting. We think as we go on in life that we sort of reach a peak. Um, I used to think that the peak of life was 17, and then I thought it was 21, and then I thought it was 35. Always before I got to that, you know, I'm going to get there, I'm going to get there. But normally by the time you get to 60, certainly by the time you get to Abraham and Sarah, as we've seen, he's 99, she's 90, and I'm old and worn out, and you say I'm old and worn out. I've got to say this to the older people here. Don't you ever say that you're old and worn out and it's just running down because the best is yet to be. Yes, you may be physically fading away, but inwardly you are being renewed day by day and the best is yet to be. How do we know that? How can we have that confidence? Well, this is the argument he uses. He He argues from the harder to the easier. He's saying, if this happened, then how much more will this happen? It's like... um, saying to somebody, they say, I'm going to kind of walk down to the end of the street. And you say to them, well, how do you know that? How do I know that you can walk to the end of the street? Well, yesterday I ran a marathon. Okay, you can walk to the end of the street. I'm pretty sure that you can do that. Well, what he says here is very simple. He's saying, since God did this, then the rest is straightforward. He's saying God will complete the task If, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So he's saying, look, God forgave you your sin. So do you really think that God is not capable of keeping you as a Christian, of God is not capable of renewing you? When you're tempted to despair, when you're tempted to give in, when you're tempted to give up, What you need to do is realize what Jesus did on the cross is the guarantee, his resurrection is the guarantee of your resurrection. You'll be saved by his life. We're saved by the death of Jesus. We're also saved by his life. And then verse 11, he just, um, just beautifully finishes this. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the earlier chapters, Paul's been warning them about boasting. Don't boast about yourself. Don't boast about your religion. But now he says we boast in God. We rejoice in God. We have no claims on God, but we rejoice in his mercy. Now, we are very, very deceptive people. Our hearts are. And there is something I would wish to um, warn you about in this respect. There's a false kind of humility that says, oh, I'm a terrible sinner. 
whilst thinking that we're great, or at least okay, or at least better than other people, because at least we recognize our sin. So we judge others for being sinners, and we'll say ourselves, oh, I'm a terrible sinner. But what we mean by that is, I'm a terrible sinner, and I recognize it. You don't. You're real scumbags. It's a bit like, um, what's his name? Uriah Heep in David Copperfield. Dickens is David Copperfield. Um, you can actually get a video record, not, not video, but you can get a YouTube recording of um, Dickens actually reading this himself. I found this absolutely amazing. And the way he reads it, Uriah Heep is just such a creep. He's just so horrible. And, and, and you read that in the book, and when Dickens reading it, you, you realize, oh, that's, that's exactly how it feels when you read uh, David Copperfield. And it's Uriah Heep's going, oh, I'm ever so humble I am. I'm ever so humble. And I'm sorry, but there are those of us who are Christians. We've got our doctrine right. We know that we're sinners. We say that we're sinners. But my goodness, there's a pride in us saying that. And we just, that's the wrong kind of boasting. Don't you dare boast in your sin. Don't exult in knowing that you're a sinner. Exult in what Jesus has done. Exult in Christ. Exult in God. Paul used to boast in his religious background. He used to boast in his good works. But now that he's been justified by Christ's blood and he's reconciled through the death of God's Son and he's at peace with God, he boasts and exalts in God. A testimony is never a testimony to how great we are. A testimony is always a testimony to what God has done. And that's why, as Stott argues, if we grasp this, we should be the most positive people in the world. Because we are characterized not by a self-centered triumphalism, but by God-centered worship. Calvin, he had to come in somewhere, said this. He now ascends into the highest strain of glorying. For when we glory that God is ours, whatever blessings can be imagined or wished ensue and flow from this fountain. For God is not only the chief of all good things, but also possesses in himself the sum and substance of all blessings, and he becomes ours through Christ. We then attain this by faith, that nothing is wanting to us as to happiness. You see, that's why if you come to this church and you say, I need help with this, I need help with this, and you want a how-to manual of five points to be, you know, five ways to be a good Christian, ten ways to be a great student, you know, eleven ways to be a really good husband, uh, and all the rest of it. And, and we did that. We taught that. I'm sorry, but you'd be missing out. Because it's not the way. Of course, we can learn things and we need to know how to behave and all the rest of it. But what we need is the snake within removed. What we need is the snake within dealt with. What we need is to be renewed and, and, and strengthened. We need to be filled with love. And we need to see the glory of God. And we need God-centered worship, not man-centered worship. Worship is really worship when instead of going out of here saying, oh, I'm so blessed, I'm so happy, I'm, that's my problem answered, or, or, or even I'm so miserable, I'm so this, that you, you go out and you say, God, what God has done is just so wonderful, and it's so incredible. It's the pouring out of God's love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's the understanding of the objective demonstration of the love of God in Christ on the cross. Christ died for me. The cross deals with sin. 
Again, forgive me for mentioning Peterson. He talks about how we need the cross. We need the cross in our lives. But he's thinking cross in terms of us dealing with our own sin. No. We always come to the foot of the cross because that is where our burden is taken away. That is where we are released. That is where we are set free. That's why Paul says, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, for some people, and it is so hard, isn't it, to explain this, going on about the cross, going on about Jesus died, it seems kind of a bit like a blood cult. It seems kind of horrific and morbid and horrible and terrible until you grasp what Paul says here, until you get that God sent his son to die for us while we were still the enemies of God, until you get that having been justified by his blood, we will be saved, we will preserve, we will be kept, whatever faces us, until you get as he comes to Romans 8 and says that there's nothing since Jesus died for us and since God gave us his son, there's nothing that will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. Nothing that can happen. No spiritual powers. No earthly rulers. Not even our own hearts can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we go on, and, I'm so, and I am really sorry to say this, it's a dark world. And there are dark things within, and there are dark things without, and it's overwhelming. And, and if you could see it as it is, you would be overwhelmed. But, but, there's this thing that's greater than the darkness. There is, as C.S. Lewis has Aslan saying, there's the deeper magic. And it's the love of God in Christ. That no matter what your circumstances today, no matter what they are, you, you are extraordinarily blessed if you believe and trust in Jesus because you know the Son of God loved you and gave himself for you. That's why I think back to these young men, not just men, of course, women as well, without any real hope, without any foundation, and without any real purpose. It's as though they're lying out in Perth Road and they've not eaten food for a week and they are absolutely starving and you walk out of this place with the greatest meal possible, the best nutrition, and you can honestly say to them, I've got exactly what you need. May God bless his word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this wonderful, wonderful gospel, this good news. Thank you that even though you, could, you knew before we came into being, you knew everything about us and you knew that we would be opposed to you, yet you sent your son to die for us. We thank you that while we were still enemies, that you died for us. We thank you that we are now guaranteed that as we come to you, we are guaranteed that you will accept us, but not only that, but also you will keep us and you will save us. And we are guaranteed eternal life. We're guaranteed an eternity without sin and pain and sorrow. And Lord, we long for it. 
And may it be that any one of us here who do not know that, that we would come to know you, that having heard of this treasure, we would seek it until we find you. And we thank you that you are seeking us in your name. Amen. We're going to sing uh, some of these words. Uh, We're going to sing them a cappella. The tune will be Ayrshire. As we sing this, maybe someone could go through and get the children uh, just for the baptism. I think the words will come up on the